Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. We've been learning, studying for some time and taking a few little side journeys about learning how to pray effectually. Effectual prayer means prayer that gets answers, that gets results. God wants us to have results. This is prayer's His idea, it's not ours. And we're looking here in Matthew chapter 7. We've gone into other directions about this, but we're looking specifically now about the key element. We've looked at several principles. The first principle is you must, you must, the basic principle of prayer is you must pray, ask, believing that God hears you and that you have the answer. Not someday, but you have the answer when you pray. You may not see the results yet, but the, the decision's been made when you pray. And so we've looked at that principle. We've looked at the principle that prayer must be specific, not just general God, please save the world, but ask God specifically for what it is you want. And the more specific you are, the better God likes it because the more honor he'll get when you see that he's, that he's given you the answer that you've sought. And the third principle we're looking at, and that has some sub-principles under it, is, is who it is we're praying to. And this is where we pick up here. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, When you pray, be not like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues in the corner of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. In other words, the praise they get from men is the only reward they're going to get. They're not going to get anything from God. Verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will, open you, will reward you openly. So the difference is in verse 5, if you're just praying to impress other people, that's the only reward you're going to get. But if your motive is to go to God, your Father, and get answers from Him, then He's the one that's going to reward your prayers. And the answers that He gives are much better. The rewards that He gives are infinitely better than the rewards you get from other people. And your Father is in secret, rewards you openly. And when you pray, verse 7, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you need have before you ask. In this matter, therefore, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9, Jesus is introducing us to this key principle of prayer for a Christian. He's saying, look, if you're a Gentile, which in this context means you have no covenant relationship with God, you're on the outside, God's your creator, he's the author of your life, but you have no access to him, you have no relationship with him, because the only way we can have an access to God and a relationship with him is through Jesus Christ, because God is a holy God. And you and I are not a holy people in ourselves. In fact, the more, as I was saying earlier, the closer I get to Him, the more I realize how unholy I am in myself and how much I need Him more and more. And so that's, not a, that's a sign of my weakness, which is a sign of His strength. And as the Apostle Paul eventually learned, he said, I need to glory in my weakness because in my weakness, His strength is made complete or perfect. And so... But, so, but he's talking to people here that had a covenant relationship with God, and because they had a covenant relationship with God, their relationship was different. He wasn't just their creator, he was their father. Father implies a relationship, the relationship to the author of your life. There are four people, and now sixth, who by marriage, including by marriage, who call me father. I know some of you spiritually call me father, but there are some who call me father because physically their life came from my wife and from me. 
And so they entered into that relationship because their life was conceived by their parents and brought forth. Well, you are a spiritual child when you're born again. That's when God becomes your father and you now enter into a relationship with him of father and child. And what Jesus is teaching them here, which was radical to the Jews of that day and is radical to the Jews of this day unless they're Christians, unless they're in Christ, is that you can call God father. In fact, at one point when he talks about this, they want to stone him to death. And he was literally the son of God. But it was so sacrilegious to them, so insulting and dishonoring to, to Jehovah. And I say, share with you before, when they went to pronounce his name, they would bloop, miss it, skip it. They wouldn't pronounce it because their term, they decided, they believed that, that they were too unholy for even his name to come off of their lips. And yet to call him father, that implied an intimate of. And Jesus is introducing them to this. But the point here, and this is what's so important for us to understand, Jesus in teaching on prayer, one of the first things Jesus teaches is, you've got to know who it is you're talking to. Because remember what prayer is. Prayer is talking to God. In some types of prayer, prayer is just communing with Him. We've talked about different types of prayer. Some types of prayer is just being with Him, just fellowshipping with Him, just hanging out. After Sunday service, second service, my wife and I went away for two days, and we just spent time together. It was wonderful because we've had a very busy schedule. We're about to pick up with a very busy schedule again, and we just needed some time where just the two of us just sitting together doing nothing. And it was wonderful to do that, just to be together. We didn't talk about heavy, deep things. We just talk together. And there's times with God just to talk to Him, just to talk out of your heart. You know, what am I going to say to Him? What would you say to your best friend? Well, I chit-chat with Him. Well, chit-chat with God. That's okay. He's God. You're not going to say anything ever that's going to impress Him anyway. So don't wait to come up with the, you know, words of wisdom that God's going to go, whoa, whoa, did you hear what Jerry had to say? My goodness. If you think that, you're really in for a rude awakening. There's nobody that's ever told God anything that ever shocked him or impressed him. So all he wants you to do is just come to him and talk to him. So there's a type of prayer that's just talking to God. But there's a type of prayer which is asking God for something. And that's intercessory prayer, especially when you're asking God to intervene in a situation for somebody else. And that's the kind we're specifically talking about here. But it's the same idea. You're talking to God, asking Him to do something for somebody else. So at its very basic, broken-down elements, it's talking to somebody. Now, if you're talking to a person, when I talk to my wife, it works much better when I look at her. And she's looking back at me. So that there's this actual concept of we're really communicating. She knows that if I'm looking at her and I'm not looking around, or I'm not... I'm let you let on a secret, men, to know whether you're really listening to your wives. As long as you're thinking up, when she's talking to you, as long as you're thinking up what your answer is going to be, you're not listening. Because <laughs> we men are notorious for this. While she's talking, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to tell her back which means I'm not really listening. I'm assuming I already know what she's going to say, it's all, it's, and I need to give her an answer so that I can be in control. That's really what it's all about, man. So anyway, we'll move along from that quickly. But the point is, I can't really be communicating with her if I'm not intent on her, which means I got to know, she's got to know I'm actually there paying attention to her. 
Well, that's one thing with a human being. You can look at them, read their nonverbal communication. You can get a sense of whether they're really paying attention here. But how do you do that with, with God? You can't see Him. Well, God's given us an answer, and that's in His Word. He tells us things about Himself so that we can know whether we, He's listening or not, so that we can know whether we can trust Him. And the root of faith, because the first principle is when you ask, when you pray, you've got to ask in faith. Well, faith comes by the, the, the old teaching, which is true, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But it's the Word of God we're here. Jesus said the key is this is in Mark eleven twenty two, not 23. 22 says, have faith in God. Have faith in who He is, something about Him. God's not a bunch of principles that we operate He's not like this, this cosmic uh, 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 computer program that once you get the right, you know, you, you click on the right thing or put in the right uh, signals that you get the right answer for. God's a being. He's a living being. And He calls Himself Father to us, which means He has a personality, He has desires, He has a heart, He cares. He has, there's all kinds of attributes about Him that He's put in His Word so that we can know something about Him. And the more you know about who He really is, the more you know whether you can trust Him. And it's only when you really trust Him that you're really going to ask Him, expecting that He's going to answer. So we've begun to look at some characteristics that God tells us about Himself. And we looked, first of all, at that in Matthew 6, verse 8. He tells us that he's already watching over us. He says, don't you know that your Father knows what you need before you ask? So we don't have to jump up and down and say, God, I'm in trouble, I need your help. He's been watching over you before you knew you were in trouble and before you knew you were in help. In fact, most likely, if you'd been listening, you wouldn't have gotten into that situation. But he's still there waiting to help us. And so God, the first thing we see about God is he's in some intimately involved in our life. He wants to be far more involved in your life. He's waiting on you to let him by asking him in to the situations of your life. The next thing we saw over in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, is that Jesus, God doesn't play games with us. He says, if a son, if you, being good, if your son asks you for, uh, for a loaf of bread, you're not going to play games with him and give him a stone. If he asks you for a fish, he's not going to fool you and give you a serpent. In other words, your father, if he's a good father, he's going to give you a direct answer. And he said, then how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? So his desire is to give us good things, not play tricks on us, not tell you, not, not you asking for something that, by the way, if you don't know it's good for you, don't ask for it. Don't, if you don't know it's good for you, don't ask for it. But God's not going to play games with you and give you some spin and say, well, you know, I know it was a rock. I know you asked for a loaf of bread, but a rock's actually better for you. No, it isn't. The bread's better for you than the rock. And so, but religion does that because, because religious people aren't getting answers to their prayers. They've got to somehow fig- justify why they're not getting answers. So they just reinterpret what good means to the point that they can twist it totally inside out. Well, you know, God's put this cancer on my little child because God's trying to teach us something. That's called child abuse in the world. Then why is it not abusive of God? Well, God has some greater good in mind. Now, what kind of trust is that? You know, I don't know whether I can come to God for anything with that. 
So we've already gone through that principle. The third one we're going to look at, this is the third principle where God tells us something about Himself. Let's go to Psalm 81. Now the key to all of this is not reading these verses or not even knowing where they are. The key is meditating on them. Because I'm not going to give you any verses tonight that, that, are, that you've really never heard of before. But the depth of these, the, the, the profound depths of what they reveal about God's character will only come as you meditate on them. Just begin to roll them around in your mind. Talk to yourself about them. Talk to them over and over. Talk about them over and over again. Psalm 81. God's talking here through the psalmist to Israel about what he wanted to do. Remember what God fed them in the wilderness? He fed them manna, which was dew that fell on the ground in the morning. And manna was the Hebrew word for what is this stuff? Because they didn't recognize it. But they would knead it and then bake it into bread. And then when God, they got really fed up with the diet that God provided and complained, God buried them in quail until it rotted in their teeth. And so, but look at what God wanted to do. Psalm 81, verse 10. I'm the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsel. This is God's heart cry. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies, turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to them, to him, but their fate would endure forever. And he for he would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would have satisfied you. That's what God wanted to do for them. But they wouldn't let him because they wouldn't trust him and walk in his ways. But look at verse 11, 10. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. You ever see a picture of a, of a, of a bird's nest when the babies have hatched? and mama comes back with the worms, it's all mouth in there, isn't it? I mean, they just go back 180 degrees, you know, get, and the mom gets her beak right down in there. Fill it up. That's the image I get here. God's saying, if they would have just, oh, as wide as they'd open their mouth, that's how I would have filled them. So the point we're looking at tonight about God is that God, your father, is stingy. And this is so important because as we've talked about before, all of us comes to Christ, all of us comes tonight with an image of what God is like as a father that's in many ways been formed by the image that's been built in you by your father, whether he was absent or not. If he's absent, that's still built an image into you. By the authorities that you had in your life growing up. Teachers, religious leaders, People that as you grew up, you learned, you tried to trust and either it came through or they didn't come through and you either learned you could trust their word or couldn't trust their word. Parents, relatives, whatever it was, all of that is deposited a mosaic in your mind that's now transferred over to God whenever you hear the word Father. 
So we're not all coming to God as Father from the same level playing field. You're bringing your experiences, your baggage about who God is as Father to the Word of God. And that's why it's so important to take these scriptures and reprogram those images with who God says He is. And this is a very important one. This is the kind of image that can lurk beneath the surface, surface, not surface, but surface, and affect what you're willing to ask Him for. Oh, you may ask Him for it, but do you really expect Do you really expect he's going to do it? One of the signs of what you really believe is what you're wanting to let yourself hope for. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith gives substance, tangibility, evidence to the things you hope for. But you're not going to hope for something that you don't think is possible. And I'm sure you've all seen this. People go to a hospital room or they go to visit somebody that's, that's sick and it's been diagnosed with a terminal disease. Well, no, we don't want to get their hopes up. And so right away we've lowered what God can do because we don't want to get... It's not their hopes, it's our hopes. But if your hope's not up, there's nothing to give your faith, nothing to give substance to. Because hope is like the thermostat, which is... Something I had to turn on this morning. Something is like a thermostat. There's no power in that thermostat, but it tells the furnace what the goal for the temperature of the house is. So hope is what you're expecting to happen. But if you think God's stingy, if you have this underlying attitude about God, well, you know, you've got to kind of talk God out of things. You've got to, you know, God kind of meets things out slowly. Whatever it may be, that's going to limit how much you're willing to hope for. And what you're going to hope for is going to limit what you're going to believe or exercise your faith for. So it's so important to be willing to sit back and examine what, are, what, do I, what am I really hoping God's going to do in my life? What am I really hoping in this situation? What am I really hoping? Because that's, your faith isn't going to go beyond that. So we've got to start with our hope, but that's going to be based on what we think about God, what we know about God. So here he's saying to us that God's saying, you open your mouth, I want to fill it. You open to me because I want to fill you. I don't want to drop, you know, God, I used to have this idea, and I didn't literally picture this, but this is kind of what I was expecting, that, that God would go around like, you know, he'd figure out what you need. And he, but he's not going to dare give you more than you need because you might get spoiled by that. And so he would meet out to you just enough, or maybe not quite all you need, so you're hungry and come back to him. In other words, he's manipulated you. Let's look at another verse. Let's go over to Psalm 84. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a, is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold. No good thing will he withhold. Well, let's go over to the key scripture here, which is in Romans chapter 8. If I could only have one chapter of a Bible on a desert island 
it would be this chapter. In fact, I've just about memorized all of it, sure I at least have this chapter. Because the gospel is really contained in here. Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up here in verse 28. He's just finished talking about prayer. The Holy Spirit's been given to us to help us to pray. When we don't know what to pray, we've already talked about that. Verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now listen carefully to this. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He, that's the Son, Jesus, may be the firstborn among many brethren. And who, moreover, whomever whom He predestined, these He called, and whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He glorified. Now listen to the progression there. For whom He foreknew, well, He foreknew all of us. He knew us, the Bible says He planned for you, before in Ephesians 1, He planned for you before the foundation of the world. See, God sees everything all at once. God's not looking at His time right now saying, you know, I hope this gets over soon, because God doesn't experience things in terms of time. We do. And so God says, it says about Him, for whom He foreknew, He predestined. That just means He planned for to become conformed to the image of His Son, that His Son might be the firstborn about of many brethren, so that when He was done, Jesus wouldn't be His, his, son, his only Son, He would be the firstborn of many of brethren. So God's plan, now think about what God's like. Now remember where this all starts. We are hopelessly lost in our sin. And if you don't think you were, you are really lost in your sin. Because the root of all sin is pride. The root of all sin is self-centeredness. And what I was talking about earlier, really what it is, the closer I walk with the Lord, the more self-centered I realize I am. How everything is ultimately based on how does this affect me? What does this mean about me? What does God think about me? Am I pleasing to God? I, me, my, my, moo, my, 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 me. Am I walking right before you? Because I want to make sure I'm right before you. Even that's self-centered. It's ultimately about me. How am I doing? Am I doing okay? And, and so what we've got to see is, and, and we can't deliver ourselves from that. We're hopelessly separated from Him in our sin. See, we think... <laughs> We think the gulf was like this, you know, well, we got a little dirty because we said some things we shouldn't have said. We did some things we shouldn't have done. I know, you know, my past, you know, I may have, you know, maybe I might not have been honest about some things and maybe I cheated a few people, but da 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 you know. So that makes me a sinner. No, that's not what makes you a sinner. What makes you a sinner is you're trying to live your own life for yourself. Oh, but I love people. But are you living your life fully, completely, 100%, for your love and devotion for God, and you don't care what happens to you. That's the root of sin. What they did, in the, what Satan got them to do in the garden, was to begin to exercise their own independent... Well, let me ask you a question. Do you have a will of your own that ever gets rebellious against God? You ever just don't want to do what the Word says? Am I the only one? Am I? Are you rusty? you just perfect saints in here? No, you're not. Whenever I just don't want to do what He wants to do, that's rebellion. That's sin. So, my gosh, I sinned today. Yes, you probably did. That's why we need a Savior. 
What I'm trying to say is the enormity of that sin and that gulf is something there was no possible hope that we could ever begin to bridge it. Just try to live a perfect day. Just try to go through your day and not say anything wrong, not have any thought that's wrong, not do, any, not do, do everything that's totally, completely loving somebody else. Because the moment you determine to do that, Satan's going to bring somebody across your path. Somebody's going to call you from the past that you forgot all about, and you're going <laughs> And see, that's not bad news. That's good news because you've got to see where you are on your own. And so the point is, is as we see this gulf, this enormity, this gulf, that's when we begin to realize the enormity of what God's done for us in Christ. Hebrews 2, sins. Dead means there is nothing you can do to make yourself alive. You can't talk to anybody. You can't get any advice. You can't exercise your will because there is no hope at that point. While we were dead in our sins and transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. He brought us back from the dead, spiritual dead. Dead spiritually means separated from God, from the source of life. He made us alive together with Christ Jesus. That would be wonderful in and of itself if He just made us alive together, if He just washed our sins away so that we wouldn't have to spend an eternity in hell and we could just get into heaven, just sneak into heaven. Oh, would that be infinitely worth everything? We're talking about what God's nature is like. If He didn't have to do that, God was entirely within His rights. God would be entirely just if every one of us burned forever in hell. But God's not content with that. He had to do something. He had to do whatever it took. But having done whatever it took, it wasn't just so that your sins would be washed away and you would be able to get into heaven. If he, that's all he did, I would never complain. I would be eternally grateful. But look what it says. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, his son, might be the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. What he's saying there is God didn't just save you from hell and give you entrance into heaven. But Jesus took, we're not going to look at there tonight, but if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, 7, verse 21, it says, He who knew no sin, that's the firstborn, became sin. So that we, who knew lots of sin, might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. He didn't just wash your sins away so that you could be forgiven and get into heaven, but he took sin, judged it, so he could legally give you his righteousness. But that wasn't all. The reason he gave you his righteousness is so he could take his own son's spirit and birth him in you so that you could become his son and his daughter just like Jesus. Amen. 
So he wasn't looking to find how little I love Denny. I know he's messed up. I know what kind of life he's lived, but I'm going to be merciful on him and I'm going to send Jesus to pay just enough of his sins so that Denny cannot have to go to hell and go into heaven and also the rest of you. And I think that's being pretty magnanimous, God says, and it would be. But God wasn't satisfied with that. See, God wasn't trying to find out how little he could do. God did whatever it took to get all he could get of you. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn. First implies a second, third, fourth, and many after that. That he could be the firstborn of many brethren. Think about that. God did whatever it took so that you and I, rebellious enemies of His, it says in Romans chapter 5, His enemy, setting up our own kingdom of ourselves with our rights and our privileges. I have the right to make my decision regardless of what God says. I'm going to take God's word, God's counsel, and decide for myself whether I'm going to do it or not. That's establishing my own kingdom in which I'm king. That's in rebellion against his kingdom. And God says, you are in rebellion, establishing your own kingdom, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay for that rebellion with my son's life so that you who are my rebellious enemy can a child. It's kind of like the prodigal son. When he woke up and came to his senses in the pigsty, he remembered something about his father. He said, well, my father's servants have it better than I do here. I know what I'll do. I'll go back with him and plead that I can be one of his hired servants. And so he gets up. I don't imagine he even cleaned himself up. And he's on his way back, and the father's out there looking for him. And when he sees his son, he runs up and embraces him, and the son starts his speech that he's been practicing. My father, I'm unworthy to be called your son. And he goes through all this. The father never hears that. He never answers it. I was teaching this years and years ago on a radio program in the middle of sudden dawn of me. Wait a minute. He wasn't his son before because he was worthy. He said, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. He was never worthy to be his son. He was son, his son, because he was born of his father and mother. You don't get into the kingdom of God because you're worthy or unworthy. You get in there by birth. The new birth. You're not born again because you were worthy, and being born again doesn't make you worthy. It enters you into a relationship. And the point here is that God wasn't trying to find out how little he had to do, whatever it took to give you the most he could give you, is what he did. He's literally made you his daughter or his son just as much as Jesus is his son. We don't have time to go over there, but read the last part of John chapter 17. 
where Jesus talking to his followers that they might know that you love them as much as you love me. Think of that. That we would know, not that he would do it, he already does it, that we would realize that he loves us, he loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. And the proof of it is he gave his Jesus' life to get yours. We're talking about what God's character is like, what his heart is like as a father. I want to give you a definition of generous. It's the attitude of giving above and beyond what is needed. The attitude of giving above and beyond what is needed. These notes will be posted on the website tomorrow. The dictionary definition I got was generous generosity is showing a readiness to give more of something as money or time than is strictly necessary or expected. It's the readiness to give more than is needed or is expected. Synonyms. Liberal, lavish, magnanimous, giving, open-handed, free-handed, bountiful, unselfish, ungrudging, free. Let me give you the definition of stingy. It's the attitude that you only give what I have to give so that my obligation is met. Definition, not liking or wanting to give or spend money, not being generous. Notice that both of these are an attitude of the heart. Both are an attitude of the heart. A generous attitude or heart is showing a readiness to give more than is needed. So the issue is not how much is needed. The issue is what I want to give. Stingy is tell me how little I have to give so that I can get away with and still be, meet the need or whatever, feel good about myself. So in Romans 8, we're now talking about this. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, when you say somebody's for something, that can have a whole range of meanings. Sometimes you'll have a, a you know, an election. Say, well, you are for, are you for this candidate? Are you? And that can mean anything from, you know, I spend, you know, 50 hours a week in their campaign's headquarters, volunteering time, I've given money to their campaign, I'm handing out stickers, or, you know, if I'm asked in a poll, yeah, I think I'm for them. There's a difference between being, you know, for some football team or for your wife. I hope there's a difference. <laughs> So it doesn't just say God's for us. He's showing us how much God's for us. He's filling in the, the coloring. You know, like, you, like my granddaughter has a coloring book, and she, she was sick today, so she was coloring in the coloring book. So it's not just this outline. It's filling in the color, so it makes the picture come out more vibrant. God's filling in the color being for us. What does this mean? What does this mean? What do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the measure of it. Verse 32. 
He who spared not his own son. If he didn't withhold his own son while we were his enemies, Romans 5 says, Herein did God demonstrate his love towards us, and yet while he were his enemies, Christ Jesus died for us. We're not talking about, you know, once you proved yourself as a faithful Christian before you ever came to Christ, God looked at you, the mess you were, the mistakes you were going to make, the rebellion, the pride, the stubbornness, all the things that are the heart especially. God looked at that, looked at you, and then looked at his holy, perfect son and said, I'm going to give you in their place. And Paul saying, if he wouldn't hold back his own son, the most precious thing in heaven, the most loved part of him, if he wouldn't hold back his own son, look at the rest of this verse. How will he not also freely with him give us all things? God proved his generosity He proved his heart. He proved his nature on the cross. If he would go to that extent while we were sinners, why would we think he would withhold anything else from us? God's not holding anything back. He's not saying, well, I don't know if you can handle it. I don't know if you know. he's, He's saying, come to me and ask. You have not because you asked not. Well, I've asked. Yeah, but did you really expect or were you trying him out? You were testing to see, well, I don't know if he's going to do this or not, so I'm going to try this out. That's not asking, that's trying. That's testing. This is what God says about himself. Let's look at another verse. Let's go over to Ephesians chapter 3. Actually, while you're going there, stop at Ephesians 1. I mean, this whole first chapter is just so rich. (laughs) In Him, verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, according to the riches of according to the riches of His grace. Not the stinginess of His grace. Not just the grace. According to the riches of His grace. Which He made to abound towards us. His grace He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. The English Standard Version says, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The NASB, the New American Standard, says, which he lavished upon us. Young's literal translation said, which he did abound towards us. The New Living Translation says, he has showered his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. The King James Version said, which he hath abounded towards us. The Amplified says, which he lavished 
upon us, lavished, abounded towards us. You know, and I've shared this with you before. I'm trying to meditate with you on these terms. See, we could just read these and be done in about 10 minutes. But if you just read this, you'll walk out of here saying, yeah, God's generous, fine. But that won't impact your life. It's the meditating on it. And that's what I'm really doing with you. I'm meditating out loud with you. I want to talk about this word lavish for a minute or abound. It's a relative term, which means what it means is based on what you've got. This last week, if I read correctly, Bill Gates Foundation gave $50 million, is that what it was, to help with Ebola in, in the West African nations. Now, $50 million to Bill Gates may not be lavishing. I don't know how much he's got. He's got billions. $50 million to you and me, <laughs> 50, you know, $5 million for you and me, a million dollars for you and me. Let's keep going down. (laughs) It all depends on what you've got. So for Bill Gates to give $5,000 is not lavishing something. For you and me, it may be. But for Bill Gates, it's not lavishing. I don't know what $50 million is to him. But we're talking about God now. So when God lavishes, that's comparable to what he's got. And I've used this expression before, so those of you in school of ministry, you've heard me tell this story. But when I was growing up, I was the oldest of five boys, and we liked and still do like ice cream. And my mother, we didn't get it all the time, but my mother would bring home a container of ice cream, and we all kind of gather around, and she would scoop it out. Of course, with five boys, you know, she has to parcel it out. She can't lavish it, you know. So she scoops it out, and then the best part was she'd go to the refrigerator, and she'd pull out this brown can that said Hershey's on it. And back then she had to take a can opener and she'd go like this and then the other side so it comes out. And then she would go over the top of it like this, you know. And then she'd go up this like this and she'd go over each of the like this, all right. That's dispensing what was appropriate for the vanilla ice cream. What I wanted to do was this. (laughs) What I wanted to do was to take the can, go to the can opener, stick it up in there and go, take the can over and go over and just dump the whole contents out. That's what lavish means. My mother put on there what was needed and what was necessary. God could have just done something. God could have just paid for your sins so that you get into heaven. But God wasn't satisfied with just having you in heaven. He wasn't just satisfied with you not going to hell. He wanted the very closest relationship he could possibly have with you. And that, whatever that means in heaven, I don't know. But in our human terms, it means that of a father and son, just as the covenant relationship of husband and wife is the closest thing as Christ is to the church. So God took the can off of his can of of redemption, off of his can of grace. And he didn't just say, look, you know, Karen, you need a little bit today, so... We'll just give you a little bit because I need to keep some for tomorrow because you may need some for tomorrow. And Jerry, we know you need some more for tomorrow. So we're going to keep some back here. You know, we just, you know, but I only have so much because, you know, there's only about, you know, almost 300 people here. So we got to make sure there's enough. No, 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 no. See, God has an endless supply because my Bible tells me his mercies are new 
every morning. So even if you think you got to the, you used up the whole can yourself today, I got news for you. God's a creator. He's, it's a, the can's filled up again tomorrow. It's like the cruise of oil, the widow's cruise of oil. The more she poured out, the more it filled up. Now you can understand where the scripture says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. This is why God says, don't try to overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good, because that's what God's done, to be like Him. So God doesn't give you just, I know how much you need, so I'm going to just give you just, you know, you got to keep them a little hungry, got to keep them a little, you know, I'm just, no, no. See, He already opened the can and dumped it over you before you were three. This is the prayer I pray for myself, my wife, my family every day, and I pray for you also. So get ready. <laughs> Verse 14. For this reason, Paul says, I bow, he's talking about the church at Ephesus, I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So we're talking about a family now. Father and family. I'm talking to my father about you, his kids that he would grant you according to the riches, there it is again, of his glory, to be strengthened with might or power through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That means actually live his life in you and through you. I've shared with you before one of the rev- revolutionary things that God showed me of this last year. He says, son, you've been trying to live your life for me. I want to live my life in you and through you. Because when I'm living my life for Him, I'm separate from Him. But when I'm allowing Him to live His life in me and through me, there's complete union there. That Christ might, verse 17, might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge or understanding that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants to live His life in you to the fullness so that, so that he, you are filled up with all of His fullness. That's why you've got, I used to say, well, God, why do you have to strengthen me by the Holy Spirit inside? What is this? What does this mean? And now I'm beginning to see why he's got to strengthen me. And to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. How can you know something that passes understanding? Because the understanding that he's talking about is the mind's understanding. But you can understand it in here. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge or understanding that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, this is what he's praying for them. But how can I know where that can happen? I could be filled with all of the fullness of Christ. I could be filled with all of his fullness so people would see me, they'd see him. How can that be? Is that too much to hope for? Paul kept going. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in him, in us. Let's break this down. Now unto Denny, 
Now unto Jerry. Now unto Steve, who can do... No, 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 no. He's not talking about what you can do. He's not talking what I'm able to do. He's talking in terms of what God's able to do through His Spirit that already dwells in you. He's trying to get them to lift their eyes off of themselves and their own limitations. I don't know that I'll ever get straightened out. I don't know that I'll ever be walk straight before God. I don't know that I'll ever be out. Stop looking at yourself. We're talking about Him dwelling in you. Look at Him that's in you. We're talking about the fullness of Him being in you. Look at who He's like. And in order to know whether it's possible, don't look at what you're able to do. Now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond. That word in Greek means to throw something And then where it lands, you go and pick it up and you throw it beyond. So you take whatever you can do and throw it as far as you can. And when it gets to the end of where you can throw it, this verse says, that's where God picks it up. And now God throws it. Just like David when he was confronted with Goliath. I believe what happened. David took that sling, he took those stones, he took that first stone, and he just swung it in the air. When he got it in the air by faith, I believe God grabbed it. (laughs) Because if you read the story, Goliath had a a, a, a shield bearer in front of him. And if you there's no way David could have gotten it over there on a direct flight. It had to go up and down. And the giant was wearing a thick bronze helmet. And the thickest part of their helmet in those days was right over the vulnerable part of their skull, right here. And that's where it embedded in enough to kill him. There's no way that stone did that by David's own effort. But David did his part. Exceedingly, beyondly, beyond all you can think or ask. David could think or ask that this stone might slay the giant. So he flung it in the air and God did the exceedingly, abundantly, beyond part. Now notice what God can't do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond. He can only do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what you ask or think. So if you don't ask or think anything, if you don't expect anything, He can't do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond that Because a million times zero is still zero. So the point here is God's not saying, all right, what is the desire of your heart? What is it you've come and asked me? All right, I want to work on your behalf, but I don't want to do too much here. I mean, I'm just going to find out. See, we almost have this image because we see these as requirements that God's sitting up there with a clipboard saying, all right, there's 17 requirements you've got to get before I have to answer your prayers. And they've done pretty well through 15, but 16, I know I'm going to get them on. It's almost as if we think, you know, we've got to get through all these hurdles, push all the buttons, flip all the ledgers, leathers, levers, turn the dial just right, and if we do all those things, then God has to answer our prayers. No! This is God's idea. God's waiting to open, to pour out what He has on you. He's your Father. He loves you. He's generous. He's not trying to hold back. We limit Him. 
Because we ask little. We limit Him because we expect little. We spend so much time looking at ourselves and am I enough? Am I believing enough? Do I confess enough? Have I done this enough? That's all looking at me. Not at what He's like. How generous He is. How giving He is. How loving He is. How much He's listening. How much He wants to do it. What God's heart is like towards you. God is generous. He's the most generous being that ever created. Your life and my life are living proof of his generosity. Every breath we breathe is a gift from him. Stop and think how many times you breathe in your life. Every beat of your heart is a gift from him. Just think how many times. Calculate sometimes. Just take your heartbeat and average that over what your life has been and realize that's a gift. Every one of those is a gift from God to you. Your life itself, you can't create it. It's a gift from God. How precious it is. We try to hold on to it. We treasure it. We value it. It's a gift from God because he's generous. He's not holding back. He's not trying to find out how little he has to do, but he wants us to open our mouths wide so he can fill it. But we have such of an image of him, we kind of pucker up a little bit. Say, God, I hope you can just get something through that I need today because I just need it today and I don't know about tomorrow. And God's saying, open wide every day and I'll fill it. That's why he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow because you're only anxious about tomorrow because you're not sure I'll come through tomorrow. So you've got to hoard up today because you may not have enough for tomorrow. I'll give you tomorrow what you need. We need to pray. Father, we thank you tonight. As we take these scriptures and begin to meditate on them, Father, open the eyes of our understanding that we might really see, truly see what your heart is towards us, your children, as our Father. That when we come to you and pray for the needs of other people and even for our own needs, we may come with a confidence, not in ourselves, but in a confidence in who you are and your love for us and how good you are that our lives may be testimonies of your grace and of your goodness and of your generosity. Father, you challenge us in your word in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Amen.